0: And so, Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask you to uh, speak, use my meager efforts, Lord, to, uh, to convey what you have in mind, Lord. And may it, anything that's not of you fall by the wayside, and that uh, we just hear from you today. In Christ's name, amen. Um, we're in 1 Kings 17, 16 and 17 again, looking at the life of Elijah. Um, I, I kind of identify with Elijah during my sabbatical especially the first half of my sabbatical, um, when Elijah couldn't understand what was completely going on, um, everything seemed new and unexpected from the hand of God, and, and that's how I felt as well. And So I was really able to relate to Elijah and 1 Kings. Uh, we're going to look at uh, just a few insights that I received during my sabbatical. Um, some may overlap with the past weeks, but um, redundancy is okay, and also redundancy is okay. So, all right. In, in 1 Kings 16, uh, we read of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who were influencing the nation of Israel away from the one true God of Israel uh, to worship of Asherah and Baal. And um, it, we're told in 1 Kings that King Ahab, the seventh king of the northern tribes of Israel, King Ahab was more evil than all the other kings before him in the eyes of the Lord. So this dude was really bad. Um, Then comes this random verse at the end of chapter 16, verse 34. In Ahab's time, uh, heel, would you pronounce that heel or hile? I'm not sure. We'll call him Heal today. Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. Okay, so here's this guy named Heel in Israel who said, Hey, King Ahab, I'm going to rebuild Jericho. Thumbs up. That's good. Good plan. Sounds like a good plan. Rebuild the city that was destroyed some 700 years ago by our own people, by Israel. Remember as they marched around the, the wall of Jericho and then the walls came tumbling down. in the first city in the new promised land. And finally someone was doing something worthwhile around here. Something exciting, sort of like building a new hotel east of Pizza Hut today in McPherson. Or if someone would only build another restaurant where Perkins used to be, that'd be exciting. Or it was really as exciting as rebuilding the entire town of Greensburg after the tornado. Someone's doing something great here in verse 34. He laid his foundations at the cost of his firstborn son Ibrahim, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Random verse. What's that all about? We're told that the two sons of Heel, the firstborn and the youngest, lost their lives during the building of Jericho. Were they sacrificed to the gods, or did they lose it in accident? We're not told. It it would have been common to sacrifice children to the, you know, to Baal worship. We know that from last week. Well, why did he lose his two sons? Well, we're told, though, that he did so because he disobeyed God's word as spoken by Joshua 700 years earlier. Joshua 6. Joshua said, after the falling of the walls of Jericho and the conquering of Jericho, cursed In the presence of the Lord is the man who restores and rebuilds the city of Jericho. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn and at the cost of his youngest. He will set up its gates. That's a pretty specific fulfillment of prophecy. Were, he was cursed. He and his family, was, they were being judged by God because they were in direct disobedience to this word. But unlike Heel, Elijah trusted and obeyed the Lord after God told him what to do. First thing he said, Elijah, go and hide in the Kareth ravine by the brook, which is chapter 17. This would have not made sense to Elijah as, as we looked at last week. Why would I go hide by the brook? And then we read in verse 5, so he did. Elijah did what the Lord told him to do. He went to the Careth Ravine east of Jordan and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Three weeks ago, we looked at how God answers prayer. We have desires, we have God, we want to get out of our pickle, out of our circumstance and predicament. And so we pray a certain way. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says slow, sometimes he says grow, sometimes he says go. So God can answer in any way that he, he so chooses. He's the sovereign God. And then last week, we looked at um, how God sometimes allows us to wait even while we're waiting by the brook of solitude, wondering what's going on in our life. And he does so because sometimes he knows we need rest. He does so because he knows we need to hear from him in a new, fresh way, tune out the distractions of the world, and tune in the voice of the Spirit of God. And he does so, thirdly, to prepare us or to refine us for something greater, a greater work in the future. And that's what we looked at in the past couple weeks. Now, it may not make sense to our modern ears, though, when we read this passage about Heal and his sons. Why would God choose to punish Heal by taking his two sons simply because he, he desired to rebuild the city of Jericho? Why did God act so harshly, so judgmental? Isn't God a God of love? To which we would respond, yes. And didn't God say that his son Jesus would come and he would pay the penalty for our sin, therefore we would not be judged, nor would we be condemned. And that's good news for us living under the new covenant, yes. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So God has no desire to condemn us, but we must first accept this gift if we're to um, escape this judgment. In verse 18, John three eighteen, whoever believes in him is not condemned. There it is. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So whether God condemns us proactively or whether we stand condemned in a passive way because of our disbelief, we will experience condemnation if we reject God's gift. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We told in First John. And so it wouldn't—it'd be similar to like if we're driving, you know, through Lakeside Park one night, and all of a sudden, you know, we're listening to music, and all of a sudden. An emergency announcement breaks in, in on the music, and it's a, it's a warning. You know, the tornado's heading towards McPherson County. Uh, it's right in the center of McPherson, so within 15 minutes, it should, it should touch down, so take cover immediately. And you're driving through the park, and you oh, whoa, whoa. And then you notice out your window, out your window, uh, there, there's a group of picnickers right there, a huge group. And so what will the loving thing be to be, do? Obviously, we would stop, roll down your window and say, hey, there's our tornado coming. You better go seek cover. So they look up in the sky. They look at you. They look up again. They say, get out of here. You're trying to ruin our picnic. Quit being so judgmental. Quit being, you know, such, Don't, don't be so negative. And so they tell you to leave them, and they accuse you of trying to scare them, they tell you to mind your own business. Well, it was never our desire to ruin their picnic, but it was simply to warn them of the approaching danger and to protect them. But ultimately, people have a free will to do as they so please, right? Second Peter 3, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their evil desires. They will say, where's this coming he promised? But the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. He doesn't want to condemn anyone. He doesn't want to um, punish anyone. It's his will that all be saved. But there will come a coming judgment day in the future for those who refuse to heed or receive the gift of Christ, right? Second Peter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. In other words, all sin will eventually be accounted for because God is just. And we know that that's a good thing. In fact, God created us in his image and he's given Each of us a sense of justice within, created in his image, right? We want the serial killers and the mass murderers to be held accountable. We want them to get caught. And the rapists and whatnot. Or like the guy Salmon Rushdie just got stabbed 10 times a week and a half ago. And it it caught my attention because he got stabbed on the stage where I graduated from high school. Chautauqua Institution. And so it made big news in my hometown. The Salmon Rushdie, who's worldwide known, sought after by um, those who consider him the enemy. And uh, he was stabbed 10 times. We want want this guy to get caught who stabbed him, and he did get caught, and we're grateful. That's justice. And there are two ways to experience God's judgment and his justice. The first would be in the past, in the body of Christ, or Christ's body as he hung on the cross. That's where God punishes sin. Or, it's in the future at the great white throne judgment. And it will be in our bodies. So there's only two ways for sin to be punished. In the body of Christ or in our bodies. It is our choice. Those are the only two choices. One will be an eternal judgment separation. The other There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel, that we can all escape that judgment. Hebrews 12, be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, then the earthly messenger, uh, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. Do we trust in God to protect us from this upcoming judgment? That's the question. Well, let's move on to chapter 17. That takes care of that random, troublesome verse, passage in 16. Moving on to 17, verse 3. God says, Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Carath ravine, east of Jordan. Well, last week, again, we looked at the fact that this would have probably made no sense to. To Elijah, Why do you want me to hide in this remote area? I am a prophet of God. You've given me a message. I have, I have something to do here, God, that you've laid on my heart. And now you're asking me to hide? Makes no sense. Verse 4. And furthermore, you will drink from the brook. Elijah might have said, a brook? Well, why, would you, why would you lead me to a brook? This brook, it, there's a drought, God. And that brook will dry up soon, and then I will die of thirst. why not? I got a better idea, Lord. Why not lead me to a lake or, or a rushing river or an artesian well or that would be a good idea, God, but a brook no elijah, God says, go drink from the brook in the ravine uh, god 's command was a matter of trust. it was a test of trust for Elijah. then God said. And, Verse 4b, I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Now, Lord, how in the world does that make sense? You declared ravens to be unclean in your law, Leviticus 11. There are birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they're unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, any kind of raven, the hoopoe, and the bat. Now, I understand, Lord, you don't want me to eat the raven, but I don't want unclean animals to touch my food every day? God, that makes no sense to me. Why not send down some manna from the sky? That'd be a better idea, Lord. Or maybe send some quail. But ravens? You know, we often want to help God out because we think we have a better idea for him. And when he doesn't do things our way, we kind of get ticked off at him. And God all the while says, you know what? You may not see the big picture, but I think my idea is a little bit better here for you. But isn't God a God who is unchanging? Even though he acts in new and interesting and unexpected ways, isn't there a God who's unchanging? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? These are the three M's of ministry, mission, message, and methods. God's mission and message never change, but his his methods do. The mission is the Great Commission. Um, The uh, message is the gospel and God's word, but his methods are many and varied, and they're always changing. In fact, in Scripture, we read how God gives us a new life, a new covenant he, he makes us new creations. He places a new song in our heart. He gave us a new commandment. Uh, we will receive a new name one day in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. Isaiah 43, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past, God says. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do, do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God is doing a new thing. When I went through my sabbatical, the first month and a half was horrendous. I didn't understand what God was doing in my life. My prayer was, Lord, I don't know if you're going to return me to ministry because in this condition, I'm not fit for ministry. So, Lord, if you want me to, if you want me to retire, or if you want me to move on and paint houses, I'm willing to do so, Lord. Uh, but if you're going to, if you're going to Release me back into ministry, then you're going to have to do something because, poof, I can't do it. And, and he did. He eventually lifted what was, you know, that was oppressing me, and um, and I'm here. Um, he did a new thing in me. It was scary, and it was disconcerting. It was confusing. I had no idea what was going on, uh, but he was faithful. Well, I love the old flannel graph stories that I learned when I was a little kid in Sunday school, right? But today I'm glad they have videos and PowerPoint and internet and all these things uh, for kids um, and for adults too. Um, I love the old time tent revivals, but today now they have online services. We can give online as well. And we have technology that reaches to the ends of the earth. It's like the modern day diaspora. If you don't know what that is, I'll share later. Uh, But um, many churches fail to impact people and they kind of have to close their doors because they refuse to let go of the past. You know, the glory days, how we used to do things. This is how church should be. This is how we need to do things. This is how we need to sing. This is how we need to do Sunday school. This is how we need to do whatever. Um, And because of that, They cease to be relevant to a changing culture. So let me say this again. The methods must change. We must do new things if we're to reach ever-evolving culture. But the message of God's Word and the the, uh, mission remains unchanged. So don't get too nervous. We believe in the Word of God. It's unchanging, and this is what we live by but we can use different methods. We don't use flannel graph anymore, nor do we use bowling alley overhead projectors. You know, they were on the cutting edge when churches were light years behind um, bowling alleys. Anyway, uh, this, is, this was a test. What, what past methods have been difficult for us to let go of? What things really get us uncomfortable when the church does this or this or this? I'm not talking about theological immorality. I'm talking about methodology. Well, there was a test of trust for Elijah um, where he had to learn to depend upon his daily provision down, by, down at the brick, brook with ravens. And Elijah would indeed trust in verse 5, so he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Karath Ravine east of Jordan and he stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. We're called to trust in God every day, daily trust. Jesus said, this is how you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus also said, whoever wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah says, because of the Lord's great Love, we are not consumed. His, compass- His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, every day. New compassions, new mercies. Great is your faithfulness. And we experienced many minor miracles during my sabbatical, my wife and I did, because many of you were praying for us. And uh, we just saw the hand of God, even in the midst of valley and darkness. Uh, Lynn and I were driving to Branson, for example. Um, for a getaway, our first getaway out of town after about two months of the sabbatical. And I was kind of reluctant to go, but as we were going, it felt, felt okay. And, and then all of a sudden, when we were almost to Branson, our air conditioner went out, 105-degree weather. This was going to be a really long week and a really long trip back. So we stopped off at the, uh, the next uh, garage that we saw along the highway there, and we pulled off, and it was one of those huge garages. Christian Brothers had like eight or ten bays of, of vehicles there. And so we thought, surely they could help us. I went to the manager, and he was really kind. He said, um, listen, we can, we can maybe fit you in in about two and a half to three and a half weeks. I said, what? He said, I can't even get my dad's truck in here. Believe me, I, I would if I could. And I said, oh, great. And so we rolled the windows down, and we went the rest of the way. The and sweating all the way. You know, sweating to the oldies in a way. And, um, and so we finally got to Branson. We thought, where in the world are we going to find a garage at the vacation capital of the Midwest with all these vacationers coming in looking for help? And, and there's no way. But the young woman at the front desk of where we stayed um, said, hey, I could recommend a place. And so she made a quick phone call, put us on the phone. The guy said, yeah, bring it down tomorrow morning. First thing, we'll, we'll fit you in. And so within an hour, they fixed their air conditioner for the rest. And it's been working ever since. I consider that a minor miracle in answer to prayer. Um, God cares for our daily needs, even our air conditioners and our vehicles. And then a couple in our group, Barry, in our small group, Barry and Julie her, they were traveling with their family once to church when they were living in Texas. Five kids in their vehicle and two parents and, and they said, hey, kids, we're going to church, but we can't stay afterwards for the dinner because we don't have enough money uh, because it cost this much per head to eat there as a donation. And they didn't want to go because uh, they had no money. And then as they're driving along, Julie said, Barry, stop the car, stop the car. And she opens the door, gets out, and she picks up this money that's just blowing across the road. And it was enough to pay for the entire family to eat. And so they consider that a miracle as well. And so the Lord does care about our needs like this. Um, And that's what Elijah discovered as well. Lord, I'm going to be sitting at this brook, be drinking from the brook. You're going to send these ravens. You care for me day after day. Well, how many days was it he was by the brook? Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Sometime later... During his time of waiting, where he's saying, How long, O Lord, do I have to sit by this blasted brook? We're told in the book of James, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. He could have been down by the brook for about three and a half years. That's a camping trip right there. (laughs) Elijah would wake up one morning after years and discover that the brook was finally bone dry. Okay, God, I knew this day was coming. I told you, you should have put me by a river. Now it's dry. Now I'm going to die of thirst here. Thanks a lot. But then, in verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, I believe that God will give us in each state of emergency as much power of resistance and provision as we need. But he will not give in advance, so that we do not rely on ourselves, but on him alone. In other words, God's timing is perfect. When we're fretting and fretting, what's going to happen tomorrow, tomorrow, oh no, what's going to happen? God says, I got it handled. Uh, My timing is perfect. During my sabbatical, I was saying, Lord, uh, I'm going nuts here. Lord, why don't you deliver me? Lord, why don't you set me free? And day after day, it felt like years when you're caught in that, right? Caught in anxiety and, and worry. And, uh, and yet God says, hey, I see, the, I see the end of the picture here. You'll be okay. You'll be standing on the stage, and you'll be preaching and teaching again. I said, all right, Lord, uh, I can't see it. But he saw the end, and his timing is perfect. Elijah needed that timing, and, and he needed direction. He needed to hear a new word from God after those many years. And it came to him in a very unexpected way. He said, Go to Zarephath and Sidon. Oh, no, not again, Lord. Not again. You want me to go to Sidon? You got to be kidding. Remember, Sidon is where Queen Jezebel's from. You know that it's the epicenter of Baal worship, Lord? You want to send me to Sidon? Send me to my own people, Lord, please. I think you got this one wrong. And then God added, He's going to send to an unlikely provider as well in verse 9. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Uh, now, Lord, widows, they're, they're women. You know that, don't you? Widow means woman, and men are the providers in our culture. Women should not provide for me, a woman, but I should go there and provide for her. And, and then she's a widow. She won't have any resources. Her husband's gone. She has no income Furthermore, she's a foreigner from Zarephath, from this pagan land of Jezebel. I mean, why in the world would you send me to her? But, Elijah, in verse 10, so he went to Zarephath. He obeyed. Okay, God, well, maybe this widow will have some residual resources. Maybe her husband left her enough funds to fill her cupboards and pantries, and then maybe she can provide that for me, Lord. No, no. Elijah discovered this woman would have been dirt poor in verse 10. When he came up to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. Why would she be gathering sticks? Because she was too poor to be able to afford fuel for her fire. And so with what little strength she had left, she went out and gathered a few sticks to make her last meal for her son and for herself. Nor did she possess a faith in the one true God, or she had little faith, Because we read in verse 12, after Elijah asked her to provide some bread to him, she said, As surely as the Lord your God lives, not my God, but your God, I don't have faith in him, you might. She replied, I don't have any bread, Elijah, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. In other words, she was hopeless. She didn't have hope in the one true God. And then finally, Elijah discerned that this woman would have been Greatly depressed. Uh, I'm gathering a few sticks to take home to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This is our last meal, Elijah. She would have been depressed and hopeless. She only had enough ingredients to conjure up one meal before they would starve to death and die. So God's request or, or command of Elijah to go to Sidon and meet this widow would have been comparable to us driving to Walmart and at the intersection main intersection by La Fiesta there there's going to be a homeless guy holding up a cardboard sign like this saying if you can spare any change or whatever you know or I'm hungry or something what I want you to do is I want you to drive your car right up to him pull over invite him into your car and what I want you to do is I want you to invite him to speak into your life with empowering words have him give you words of encouragement, a word of knowledge, a word of direction. And then I want you to ask him if he would uh, take you into Brahms and, and buy you a chicken dinner. I'm thinking, don't you have that a little bit reversed here, God? Shouldn't I go and help the poor guy? No, no, no. I'm going to use him in your life. That's, that's how much sense it would have made to Elijah to go and meet up with this widow from Sidon. But God uses new and surprising ways to provide for us. He utilizes the most unlikely people and situations to reveal his glory and provision. And maybe, just maybe, that's why God chooses to use you and me. Because he uses unlikely characters like us. So how did Elijah respond again? Again, He did exactly what God told him to do, even though it made little sense to him, because he chose to trust in God's promises. Verse 14 This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And God did just what he said he would do. The flour never dried up, or the oil never ran dry until it began to reign. Um, verse 16, we read that. And so God is faithful. God keeps his promises. I learned that during my sabbatical. I learned it in a new way because the Lord led me into a territory that was brand new to me and scary. But I had learned to trust in God in a much deeper way. And I continued to do so. Numbers 23 became an important passage for me during that time, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And that rhetorical question would be no. He does not act that way. And by the way, you know what? One thing that drives me nuts when someone answers their own questions I just answered my own question. (laughs) All right. Uh, Another verse, Psalm 37. I was young and now I'm old and yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. The flour never um, would run dry and the oil. Jesus is our bread of life who will provide for our daily need. He is sufficient. He will never abandon us. His sufficiency will never fail us. And his living spirit is pictured as the oil in scripture that never runs dry. That's why we sing songs like, give me oil in my lamp, keep it burning, burning, burning. You know, we sang that last night. You know what? Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. That one. We're talking about the Holy Spirit who never runs dry. And there's a lot of imagery in Scripture that we can look at some other time. but So my last question is, for what do you need to trust God that he'll be faithful even when he acts in totally new and unexpected ways? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for a time we could be in your presence and we could sit under the authority of your word. Lord, once again, I pray that if any of these words, like my stupid jokes, Um, are not of you, then I pray that they'll be quickly forgotten. And just the one thing you want us to remember today, because we've been here, I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you'll massage that within our heart and our soul, and you'd encourage us to continue to persevere, follow you, love you, and, and serve you, I pray. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name, amen.